Welcome to the Refuge Recovery Podcast. Refuge Recovery is a Buddhist-oriented path to recovery from addictions. For more information, please visit us at refugerecovery.org. Okay, it is 5 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. Welcome, everybody. This is the first Thursday uh, monthly meditation teaching group from Refuge Recovery World Services. I'm Noah Levine. Anybody that's new, welcome to you. Thanks for joining us or listening later on YouTube. Um, Just a reminder, this is not a Refuge Recovery meeting. Refuge Recovery meetings are peer-led and there's no Q&As or advice giving or lecturing. Uh, Anything like that shouldn't be happening in Refuge Recovery meetings. This is a Uh, teacher-led offering that I do once a month and um, coming up with some some connected topic to our our refuge recovery program, some Buddhist teaching, and trying to apply it to our our recovery. Um, Last month, I talked about uh, sex and sexuality and uh, finding a healthy healthy balance of our relationship to sex. Tonight, I'm going to talk about money and um, our relationship to money as recovering addicts. And uh, perhaps some people in the room tonight or listening to this later have actually developed a process addiction around money, around shopping or spending or uh, you know, um, gambling or debting or you know, something. So we're gonna talk about money, but not just as an addiction, um, just as a central part of our life. Um, for those of us in the world, in the material world, in the capitalist world, um, and talk about uh, you know, developing a wise relationship to finances uh, as part of our Buddhist practice, as part of our uh, recovery. Um, but we'll begin with a period of meditation. So let's meditate first, and then we'll talk about money after and have some Q&A about it. So find a way to sit, sit upright, sit relaxed, find a posture that feels sustainable. We'll do a short meditation, just about a little over 20 minutes, probably. But as you're ready, settling in, adjusting your posture, releasing any unnecessary tension, let your body be upright without being rigid or stiff. Allow your eyes to gently close. And bring an attitude of kindness, of friendliness, mercy, and compassion into your heart, your mind, into your body. The intention to be kind to yourself to be patient and tolerant of your own mind, emotions, sensations. And from this intention of kindness, friendliness, Establish mindfulness, present time, non-judgmental awareness in the body, with the body. Bringing our attention to the breath, the sensations of breathing, the sensations that the breath creates at the nostrils. Disengaging from the thinking mind Engaging, tuning in to the feeling body, sitting, breathing. Mm 
the Buddha's initial meditation instructions were quite simple. Something like breathing in, one knows I'm breathing in, breathing out, one knows I'm breathing out. Investigating your own direct experience, what allows you to know whether the breath is coming and going? And what is it that takes your attention away from the breath? Sounds, thoughts, just acknowledging, thinking, and come back to the breath. Not trying to stop our minds. Just trying to stop paying attention to the mind for now, as we pay attention to the body. As you pay attention to the body breathing, if you become aware of tension in the belly or jaw or shoulders or anywhere else that your body gets tight, experiment with softening. Maybe as you exhale, what is it like if you let your shoulders drop away from the ears or you relax your stomach, release your jaw?
learning to ignore the mind as part of our breaking our addiction to thinking. Learning to rest in the awareness of the body, mindfulness of the body, mindfulness of the breath. But the Buddha's instructions encouraged us to continue beyond this initial practice to include our whole body, including the sense doors of seeing and hearing, smelling and tasting, including the sense door of thinking, the mind and emotions, part of our awareness, mindfulness practice, turning towards observing the mind. present time, non-judgmental, kind awareness towards what we're experiencing right now. And identifying the sounds, the thoughts, the sensations that are happening and investigating, are they pleasant or unpleasant or neutral? The second foundation of mindfulness, our perception of pleasure and pain. Pleasant thoughts arising and passing, unpleasant thoughts or emotions coming and going. Mindfulness reveals the impermanent, unreliable, and impersonal nature of all of the experiences, thoughts, sensations, emotions, sounds, all arising and passing. Mindfulness becomes the intervention as we identify how often we're getting attached, clinging to pleasure, craving for pleasure. Or meeting the unpleasant with resistance, aversion, resentment. Mindfulness as a intervention where we can begin to choose to meet our pain with kindness, with mercy, with forgiveness and compassion. Where we can begin to choose to let go. Let go of that which we've been clinging to. Letting go of the past as much as we can. Letting go of the future, our worries, our doubts, even our hopes. Letting go as much as we can this moment.
for the last couple of minutes. Reflecting on your relationship to money. Maybe even just saying that in your mind, money. What happens in your jaw, in your chest, in your belly? Is money have connotations of being pleasant or unpleasant? Investigating the clinging, the craving. How much do you suffer about finances? Worry, fear, jealousy, judgment. To what extent do you have non-attached appreciation for money, for success, for other people's success. When you're ready, allowing your eyes to be open. Continuing to reflect a little bit on your relationship to money. Before I share some thoughts, some Buddhist perspectives, some personal perspectives, um, what are some of the words that come up for you when you think about money? And you can raise your hand and I'll call on you and you can say to the group, what are some of the associated thoughts and feelings about money. Come on, this is group participation. Go ahead, Michelle. Um, hey, freedom. I couldn't hear you. I said freedom. Can other people hear her? Oh, for some reason I can't. Oh, maybe it's because. Here, say it one more time. I said freedom. Freedom. Sorry, for some reason when my mic is plugged in, I can't hear you, so I unplugged it. Yeah. Um, freedom. Okay, what else? Andrew, go ahead. Un un unmute yourself. Abundance and scarcity. Scarcity and abundance. Yeah, Chuck? I didn't hear you, Chuck. You have to unmute yourself, I think, down at the bottom. There you go. Um, gratitude. Gratitude, okay. Ivan? Greed. Greed. Padma, go ahead. I don't want to deal with it. We could say aversion. I don't want to deal with it. Yeah. Quinn? Uh, fear. Fear. Mm -hmm. Erica. Anxiety, shame, 
and judgment. Anxiety, shame, and judgment. Mm -hmm. Anybody else want to jump in? We can leave it there. We got, uh, I mean, what an interesting, you know, everywhere from gratitude and abundance to anxiety and fear, and I don't want to deal with it, and, uh, you know, gratitude and, and both sides. Um, uh, what a, a kind of great teaching and, and example of how um, it's not the thing as much as our relationship to the thing, our perception. Um, and that, you know, in different circumstances, it's, um, you know, this kind of second foundation of mindfulness, pleasant or unpleasant, is not based on what's happening, but how we're relating to what's happening, our own, uh, you know, in this case, you know, money. Sometimes it's gratitude, and, uh, you know, sometimes it's fear. I don't talk a lot about money in the refuge recovery book. Michelle and I, as we were beginning, did a little search uh, through the book. And money itself is only uh, mentioned like four times, but there's not any really clear, I don't, I don't make very many clear statements about it. In the chapter on right livelihood, we discuss livelihood and service and um, the, general human condition of selfishness and self-centeredness and fear that we're all born into. Uh, and the Buddha's encouragement to uh, find a source of income, a source of livelihood that is not creating negative karma for us um, out of understanding of cause and effect that how we earn money affects us. And you know how we relate to money affects us. That there's karma in all of it, and the importance from the, the Buddha's perspective of making sure that we're not engaging in uh, our life's energy work in a way that's creating harm to us, even if it's uh, financially, um, uh, you know, lucrative. You know, kind of. Uh, and I. I personally like very much that the Buddha had the uh, wisdom uh, when kind of speaking to householders to uh, like us to kind of address money's money's an issue finances are an issue you're going to suffer about this something to be mindful of and something to make some very clear. Um, choices about developing a relationship to livelihood and to money that is uh, not going to cause you harm. And um, certainly we can look at the world and see how much uh, greed causes people harm, ca causes the planet harm, um, how much suffering there is around money and attachment and greed. And, um, you know, certainly the Buddha was talking about these kind of things in his culture 2,600 years ago in India, which most of us would look back on and be like, what a like spiritual time on the planet. But he was like, you know, everybody's greedy and, you know, um, suffering about money. It's, you know, same shit that we're saying, you know, these days with the unbridled capitalist society that we live in, where, you know, there's all these billionaires. But he was saying the same thing about, you know, the wealthy people, you know, hoarding all of the money in his time as well. Um, the cause of all of our suffering is craving and clinging. And this is not just for us addicts. Us, us addicts who find our way to recovery have a specially intimate relationship with craving, an especially intimate relationship with, you know, the kind of extremes of craving and addiction. But this is also just the human condition. All of the people who aren't addicts also have craving and clinging and suffering. But because we have something that's a little bit more off in some ways, a little bit more intense, a little bit strong, you know, um, and that repetitive craving, the Buddha said the, the cause of suffering for everyone is repetitive we could say clinging. He used the term tanha, which translates as thirst. We translate it as craving, but it's also manifests as attachment and aversion. 
Um, and so we all have to look at our relationship to money and say how attached, how much clinging, how much, how much am I turning money into a source of suffering because of my clinging, because of my craving, because of my aversion. So, you know, sometimes it's the other side. It's, you know, what uh, one person said of like, I don't want to deal with it. I'm averse to it. I, you know. non-attachment renunciation non-attachment and suffering so just reflect for a moment you know as a thought experiment what if you were not attached to money in any way what if you let go of the idea that money was going to create any kind of happiness for you. Now, of course, we do live in a world where there's some level of necessity. So, now I don't know if this makes sense or not to you, but because I got involved in Buddhism in my early recovery, and because many of the Buddhists that I met were monks who had become renunciates, nuns and monks, who had um, taken a vow of uh, poverty, who had decided that what they were going to do with their life was not deal with money, not have a livelihood, but they were going to be full-time professional Buddhists. <laughs> professional as in... Uh, totally renounce sex and money and live in the monastery and live on the generosity of others, the, the, the donations, the dana that they received without any kind of, and I don't know that this makes sense for most of our community, but I'll share that for me, because I deeply considered becoming a monk in my early years, I feel quite clear that I have chosen to um, participate in the material world. That it's a choice that I'm making. I'm choosing to earn a livelihood. I'm choosing to earn money, to spend money, to save money, invest, all of that. That it's not something, because I feel like most people, I don't know if this is true for you, but it's, I have this idea that most of us think I don't have a choice. I have to, because I live in this world, this material world, this capitalist world, I have to earn a living. And it's mostly true, but also this, there's this other, for me in Buddhism, there's this other option that says, actually, you don't have to. You could um, become a nun. You could become a monk. You don't have to work. You could go meditate all day, every day. You could go and live in the monastery and, and live a life of service to the other people in the monastery and uh, never have to work another day in your life. I mean, you're gonna have to get up at 3 a.m. and do the chanting and you gotta live by all of these rules and you, know, you don't get to have sex and all of that stuff. <laughs> but like I said last month around sex, celibacy, is an option. Choosing to have sex is a choice. I don't know if it's quite as true about money for most of us, but it, there's some truth to we are choosing to live in this world um, and to not become a renunciate. Um, or, you know, I mean, look around Certainly my neighborhood, I don't know about you, but lots of homeless people out there, houseless population who, you know, are saying, oh, you know what, I'm gonna choose not to pay rent. Now, of course, there's addiction and mental health issues and all of that going on. Not a lot of people in the tent cities who are like, I'm gonna do this because I'm gonna meditate all day. <laughs> um, but maybe some, and certainly that was the Buddha's choice to walk away from money and those kind of responsibilities and to fully engage in meditative development of wisdom and compassion. 
So we choose on one level or another to participate in, in money. And so, of course, the encouragement is non-attachment. What if we could relate to money um, without fear, without clinging? Now, there is some line here. And I don't know where the line ends, but this is uh, I'm kind of sharing with you my process around money and um, the good question that each of us has to ask, ask is where's that line between non attachment and irresponsibility. There's a great encouragement in refuge recovery and in, in, in Buddhism to practice generosity to be of service. Even the way we've, um, you know, structured our whole nonprofit and all of the meetings and everything, no fees, no dues, it's freely offered. But an encouragement to be generous. Now, generosity and service, of course, doesn't only have to do with money. It has to do with our time and our energy and the way that we listen to each other and talk to each other. But it also has to do with finances. It's said that um, the Buddha often the first teaching that he would give when you when you if you if you got the opportunity to meet the Buddha that the first teaching that he would almost always talk to people about was the importance of generosity. And that this is where uh, Buddhist teachings almost always start are you giving. Now, one of the reasons I believe that is is because human beings are so selfish and self centered. And that repetitive craving so often manifests as clinging and attachment. If we want to get free from the suffering that clinging creates in us, we have to start giving. We have to give of our time, of our energy, of our finances when we can. Practicing generosity, uh, the karma that we create, the merit that we create when we don't cling to our money, but that we share it, we give it some some part of it but of course there is irresponsible generosity you know maybe sometime you're in a refuge meeting and you're feeling so grateful that you put all of your money in the basket <laughs> this has never happened but it could <laughs> you put all of your money in the basket because you feel so grateful for recovery you feel so i want to i love it so much and there goes this month's rent and you're like, oh shit, now I can't pay rent because I was non-attached to the point of being irresponsible. I was impulsive about my spending, impulsive about my generosity, impulsive about not having that balanced relationship of like, you know, $5 suggested donation, I can do that. I don't need to do 500. I can do the $5 suggested donation. I'm feeling very grateful. I can give the five bucks every week, you know, every meeting, every day, whatever, but I don't need to go overboard. But the other side of that is when we are, and I don't mean this just about refuge, but and this is a refuge related, uh, you know, when we're sitting in a meeting and we feel like, ooh, uh, five bucks, I'm just gonna give $1. I'm going to go buy a $7 coffee <laughs> in a minute, and I'm going to go to a $20 movie later, but I can't afford to give a few extra dollars to something that I don't have to give it to. It's freely offered. I don't, I only, you know, if they charge me, I'd pay it. But that practice of getting into, I give because it feels uh, important to give eventually generosity feels good sometimes in the beginning where when we're fear-based when we're attached we're not doesn't feel that good it feels like oh giving i don't love to give i don't love to uh you know it doesn't feel feel great eventually usually once you get into the practice of generosity you start to see the benefits the freedom that comes from non-clinging from giving
I, of course, don't have any really specific advice. The Buddha didn't have really specific advice about how much money we should have or how much money we should give or one of my favorite teachings from the buddha on this topic is um let me see if i can actually find the the teaching Something like this. A rich man once asked the Buddha, I see that you are the awakened one, and I'd like to open my mind to you and ask your advice. My life is full of work, and having made a great deal of money, I'm surrounded by cares. I employ many people who depend on me to be successful. However, I enjoy my work and like working hard. But having heard your followers talk of the happiness of the renunciate's life and seeing you as one who has given up a kingdom in order to become a homeless wanderer and find the truth, I wonder if I should do the same. I long to be a blessing to my people. Should I give up everything to find the truth? The Buddha replied, the happiness of a truth-seeking life is attainable for anyone who follows the path of unselfishness and generosity. If you cling to your wealth, it is better to throw it away than to let it poison your heart. I fucking love that line. If you cling to your wealth, it is better to throw it away than to let it poison our hearts. But if you don't cling to it, but you use it wisely, then you will be a blessing to people. It is not wealth and power that enslave people, but the clinging to wealth and power that enslave people. The Buddha goes on to say, my teaching does not require anyone to become homeless or to resign the world unless they want to, but it does require everyone to free themselves from the illusion that they are a permanent self and to act with integrity while giving up clinging to pleasure. So this clear teaching about, we don't have to give it all up, we don't, you know, but finding that way to have non-attached, non-clinging, and that we can use our uh, time and our energy and our finances to help each other, to be a blessing. Maybe open for some questions as you reflect on money. Um, you know, and now this, I'm I kind of, so far, I've mostly just been talking about the general uh, now, maybe there's something different for those of you who have actually uh, identified money as a process addiction, spending or gambling or uh, debting or, um, you know, or even uh, kind of hoarding. Uh, you know, maybe, maybe there are people listening to this who have lots and lots of money um, but have that internal feeling of it's not enough. Um, and that there's almost this sort of addiction to having and not even um, utilizing it, just kind of it's there, it's in the bank, lots of it, I'll, you know, more than I'll ever spend, you know, but I'll leave it to the kids or the grandkids or whatever it is. Uh, and just kind of looking at 
uh, that. And the last thing I'll say, not Buddhist. Maybe more psychological. I got a question, Noah. Sure. Uh, let me let me say my thing real quick, Ivan, and then I'll um, get your question. Uh, more psychological. I think it's interesting. I heard this, and it's been beneficial to me of looking at what did our parents teach us about money and thinking about mom. You know, because there's that's kind of psychological. What did we learn from our parents? What was mom's relationship to money, and how did we go against that or or, or follow it? What did dad, what was his relationship to money? What did we learn from dad? What did we learn from mom? And how are we then playing that out? You know, if we had parents that were really attached, or did we become, or did we go the opposite way? Or if we had parents that were really loose, we'd get a little uptight about it, like, you know? Um, so just looking at, you know, what did we learn from our parents psychologically? So Ivan, go ahead, jump in with your question. Yeah, sure. Um, my question is more related to like the concept of, of you know, right livelihood, right? So <clears throat> there's, um, you know, people have their, uh, the way that their mind works when it comes to the things they do to earn a living. So a, a guy may be good at math, I'm good at, uh, I don't know, the keyboard, you know, playing music, right? So um sometimes we find ourselves forced to uh, do things that we don't like for money and our relationship to money is painful and we hate our jobs and we're in the wrong place right so um we or i at least try to escape from that you know um spot where everything feels uncomfortable and then my relationship to money is just hate you know pure hate so i don't know to you know to go around that I don't know how to break that um, cycle of, of being in the wrong place and hating work and hating money. And, you know, so the, basically that's the question. How, how do I, how do I shift, you know, my relationship to money with, uh, you know, I have a talent for this, but I'm doing, I don't know, spreadsheets and, you know. Um, I don't know the answer. Um... And I don't know if this is helpful, but my the thought that came to me, and you could maybe you've already done this and you could experiment with it, which is, um, you know, it does, it feels like the, it somehow comes back to the clinging and the craving and the, the, I do feel like some of what you're saying is like, I feel like I have this skill and this talent and, and I don't know how to monetize it. And so then I'm doing this other thing that, you know, um, doesn't feel so good, but that, you know, job that you find yourself in noticing, okay, this feels unpleasant. I have some judgment. I have some resentment. I have some resistance of taking that as part of your mindfulness practice and seeing what if I actually show up to that job that doesn't feel like my calling doesn't feel, but it is what I'm doing. And I have agreed to, to do this work for, you know, to pay the bills. And what if you, you know, kind of show up to it, try, you know, to experiment with showing up to that job in the spreadsheets or whatever it is with, with a mindfulness and of like uh, pleasant and unpleasant. And can I bring compassion to this? And can I, you know, bring non-attachment? And can I actually show up to this job in my kind of wisdom and in my mindfulness practice and, and, and equanimity practice? That's that understanding of like, oh, it's not what's happening. It's not the job. It's my relationship to the job. It's not what I'm doing. It's my resistance to it. It's my judgment or my craving to be doing something else that's making this unpleasant. And actually saying, could I go, could I develop the kind of wisdom where I can show up to doing those spreadsheets or whatever, um, without suffering about it, with equanimity, with non-attachment, with wisdom? That having, so I don't know if that's helpful at all, Ivan, maybe not, because uh, I don't really know what to say other than like, um, you know, go for it, like follow your passion. And if there is a way to transition livelihoods into doing what it feels like is more a calling or you're more meant to be doing, um, then, you know, look for those opportunities. 
I feel like a lot of people who are, you know, artists or musicians end up finding, you know, like, I don't know, 1% of the artists and the musicians get to make a living doing that. And the other 99% of the artists and musicians, you know, work the day job and then they, you know, play music for fun and, and make art for fun. And it's a, a passion and, and something that they do uh, that they don't actually get to monetize. And that does seem to be true for uh, the majority of, of people who are creative, you know, such a small percentage of creative people actually are able to uh, make a living at it. Yeah, thank you very much, Noah. And yeah, I, I hate the spreadsheets. It's just horrible. Fun. So maybe forgiveness practice for the spreadsheets. Try that. Let us know how it goes. Erica, go ahead, jump in. So, yeah, the end of what you were saying is me. I grew up with parents who, like, massive scarcity. Like, I used to joke, like, that it was like I was born in the 30s. Um, but, so my parents, super careful with money. Everything was, like, control, control, control. And so I did. I, like, my addiction went way to the other side of, like, I had no control over spending and spending was joy for me. Spending was like freedom. I think that I didn't have as a child. Um, and then it became the addiction really was like, when I didn't have control of my life, I had control of what I purchased. I had control of the stuff and, you know, I am in the process of sort of just reconnecting to this and redefining and like realizing, you know, so I'm in the middle of a divorce, but the divorce is because I didn't have a voice in the marriage and the, and the stuff became my voice. It was like, it, it was the thing that I could go to that brought me joy. It brought me peace. It brought me hope when I didn't have that in the rest of my life. And I am learning now to like, let go of the stuff. Um, it's still a struggle for me. I definitely cling to stuff because I see potential in things. I see um, the potential to create because I'm a creative and like, I see the opportunity and I, and I hate waste. And so I see, so hoarding also big, big problem for me because I, this thing about nature and not wanting to put put things in a landfill and then seeing the potential and and but things sit and i don't use them and what i'm learning is that like i am preventing others from experiencing or having because of my clinging to things so letting go and donating and giving is helps me yes for sure thank you for sharing that there was another hand, but did it go away? Was it was it Judy or was it someone else? Oh, I think it was me, but I I lost my um, Podman. I lost my um, connection, and I came back. Oh, go ahead, Podma, if you want to. Yeah. So thank you for bringing this topic up. So you know, I don't mind paying my taxes at all. But I don't like where the, the fact that 20% go to the war industry. So a number of years ago, I decided not to pay them. And I made a, a donation from that amount, you know, of what that would be to us, uh, an organization whose values I respected. But then I got scared when the IRS came after me. And, um, and I, you know, like, I really get this thing about generosity. And I just, this is like such a conundrum, paying my taxes and, um, and, and just knowing that, that that's, um, like, I, we, we can't choose where we send our money sometimes. And I don't, you know, we could say this is a first world problem. It's a huge first world problem. 
and I want to address it, but maybe you have an idea of how I could address it. Aside from getting arrested, which I've also done. <laughs> um, I don't have um, much good ideas about uh, the conundrum of living in a society that um, taxes uh, exorbitantly, some would say, and um, uses, uh, you know, I, 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 when you said 20% towards the military industrial complex, I thought it was much more than that um, from what I, some numbers that I had heard. Um, but you might be right. Maybe it is only 20%. It probably is. No, it probably it was, is. I thought it was a lot more than that. Um, but yes, this is a dilemma. And uh, it's a dilemma that we all get to, to sit with. And, you know, and there's also that like dilemma of, uh, you know, living in the, this country and, you know, most other countries are just as bad, hard to find many countries that aren't pretty corrupt, you know, in some ways or another. Um, and then our commitment to honesty and integrity and, um, you know, not lying and not stealing and not cheating, uh, even when it feels like it could be uh, pretty justified, you know, when it comes to the tax man <laughs> or, or whatever it is. So yeah, this is a conundrum um, that I don't, I don't have a lot of answers, answers for. Um, I just uh, pay my taxes and uh, accept the karma that comes with with uh, being involved in, you know, this society um, that, you know, is wonderful in some ways and not so wonderful in other ways. So, sorry to not have any better advice or, or perspectives on that. And the Buddha didn't talk about it. Well, the Buddha <laughs> chose to not participate in it by becoming a renunciate. You know, the Buddhist monks are actually not allowed to um, talk about politics in this way or not, not allowed to get involved in these sort of political discussions. They have their views and their opinions, but they're, they don't get to vote. And, you know, they've sort of taken a vow to, to not participate in this way. And, you know, for those of us who are choosing to participate, and I'm sure in our community, there's lots of different views and opinions about this stuff. I happen to kind of agree with you about it, but find myself in this place where I'm also committed to uh, being honest. Thank you. Yeah. Sebastian, I thought you had a question tonight. I did, but it was more about like compassion and stuff like that. Since we've been on the money thing, I didn't want to interrupt. <laughs> well, let's end with a question about compassion. All right. So uh, I got a couple of different approaches for it. So I've been focusing on compassion for um, going into my fourth month now. So I'm three months in just doing the compassion meditation every day. Um, and I'm going into it for uh, because of judgments. So I guess the first question is like, how does compassion help us in our recovery? I kind of have some ideas, but I'm just kind of curious uh, what the intention is, uh, you know, for us to practice it here. Uh, and the second part is like, in the meditation, it says, um, you know, it says, may I learn to care about suffering and confusion? May I respond? But then, but afterwards, it, it goes into this thing of like, may you learn to care about um, suffering and confusion? May you respond with mercy and empathy to pain. May you be filled with compassion. We think of different people. Um, how does that benefit us? Like that person can't hear us, you know what I mean? So how does it help us thinking of somebody else and hoping that they get that? Um, I end up just thinking about it like for myself or may I have compassion towards you, my benefactor, or you, this difficult, challenging person. I can see some benefits in that. 
So for the first part about how does it benefit us and, you know, just to have compassion um, and, you know, with the judgments and uh, on some level, compassion might literally be a relapse prevention tool and experience. Because if we get too caught up in our resentments and our judgments and our anger and hatred of the people that we judge, um, you know, it's that kind of anger that often will get us loaded again or, or push us into relapse, that kind of a tight, attached, judging hatred often will be like, fuck it, I'm getting loaded. You know, whether that's drinking or shooting dope or, you know, uh, um, uh, um, process addiction, acting, you know, against our own bottom lines. Um, so having compassion for others <laughs> will give us a more regulated nervous system, which will make it that much easier to stay in recovery, right? So in that way, it's selfish. If I can develop compassion rather than hatred, I'm more likely to stay sober on that kind of level of recovery. Now, not only, you know, so there's the abstinence piece and then there's the uh, you know, when I'm in judgment and I'm in anger and I'm in hatred, I am living this unpleasantness. I am living this, I'm suffering, I'm creating suffering in me at you. I think, you know, and so compassion is alleviating suffering rather than meeting pain with aversion or people with aversion or uh, meeting them with compassion. Oh, then I don't have to suffer. So it's not only I'm not going to drink because, you know, sometimes you'll be sober or, or staying in recovery, but you're kind of miserable. So compassion is like the antidote to misery <laughs> to actually in the midst of unpleasant people and places and things, having compassion lets us be at ease in the midst of those unpleasant people, places and things. Now, the second part around, does that make sense for the first part? Yeah. The second part around why do we wish it for others? Now, I shifted that a little bit in that instruction because the, the classic Buddhist uh, practice would be to say, um, may you be free from suffering. You know, and thinking about the other people in the meeting, may everyone here be free from suffering. And then thinking about, you know, your people, your men, your mentors or, or, or um, benefactors and thinking about everyone else, may you be free from suffering. Now, I shifted it a little bit because our understanding is that freedom from suffering comes from having compassion for our pain, having non-attachment to pleasure. This, so in that compassion, may you... Uh, when I'm wishing for some person in the meeting or some person on the street or some person, you know, across the world um, to be, to learn to meet their pain with compassion, I'm wishing for them to be free from suffering. With that equanimity understanding that your happiness, your freedom is going to depend on you developing compassion, not my wish for you. No matter how much I love you, I can't make you happy. I can't free you from suffering. I can't make you stay sober. You have to do that for yourself. And so that's that practicing that equanimity and the compassion, wishing compassion. May you be free from suffering. May you do what needs to be done. May you develop mercy and compassion in your life so that you don't have to be such a miserable fuck. <laughs> Please. <laughs> Right. Like, uh, so I hope that makes sense. It's, it's bringing in that sort of equanimity understanding that it's that generosity of I want all living beings to be free from suffering. And I know everyone has to do it themselves. I can't do it for anybody else. I can do it for me and we can be of service and we can be generous and we can support and encourage and inspire each other. But ultimately, everyone has to develop their own compassion for their own pain in order to free themselves from misery. You're still muted. Oh, sorry. I, I was going to say, I feel, I feel that. I, I just feel like it's like, it's like a wish that no one hears. Like, you know what I mean? Like, I want to go up to him and be like, hey, hey, homie, 
you got to, <laughs> I hope you get some, you know, you learn to care about this or whatever. So that's what I'm trying to find out. Like, you know, I get it. Like, I, you know, just hoping that they do, you know, have that type of response, you know, to, uh, you know, suffering and, and confusion and that they uh, respond with mercy and empathy to pain. Uh, but it's just, like, it almost feels like this, almost it's like a prayer. It's more for, it is a more, but it's more of a, like, we're training our own minds to think kind thoughts. And so we're really, it's for you. The more I think about other people in this sort of wisdom and um, equanimity understanding of like, you know, may you do what needs to be done to free yourself. I'm sending you love. I'm sending you compassion, but also I'm understanding that I can't do it for you. And, but the more I develop those thoughts, the less I'm going to get stuck in attachment and judgment and clinging and codependency, right? Like on some level, this is the antidotes to codependency of saying like everyone is responsible for their own happiness. I need to remind myself over and over and over. So I don't get too stuck in thinking I can change people. I can support and encourage and inspire and, you know, sometimes confront and all of that stuff has its place. But ultimately, I want to have a heart and a mind that understands I can't do it for you, homie. I want it for you. I want it for all of you. And I can't do it for anybody. And so that's where we're why we're kind of extending that. It's for us. It's for our own mind to come from that place of, of understanding, compassion and non-attachment. I hope that somewhat makes sense. Also, if the shit I say doesn't make sense, that's okay too. Uh, you get to find your own way with all of this stuff. And uh, certainly I'm not uh, asking anybody to believe me or to believe the Buddha or to believe in Buddhism or any of that shit. Um, but these are just perspectives for you to contemplate and for you to uh, investigate. And uh, maybe some of the stuff I say you don't like, and that's okay. Like set it aside, find out what's true for you. Um, and we'll end with that tonight. Thank you for being here. Glad to see everybody. Um, you know, I did talk about generosity tonight. I will say there is a um, strange phenomenon. I don't know how often you, those of you who attend refuge um, regularly donate to the meetings you attend, but since we receive the donations at World Services, we see that it's, um, I don't know exactly what the number, but less than 25% of people that are attending meetings are donating at meetings. And sometimes we think it's as, as low as 10% of people that are attending meetings are actually donating. So just thinking about that, maybe you're one of the people that doesn't have any money and isn't able to donate. You're welcome to be part of this thing, regardless of ability. You know, Of course, we set it up that way. But also maybe you're one of those people that has the money and is choosing not to donate. Maybe you have some reasons for that, or maybe it's unconscious, or maybe it's tied up in this whole thing around money and uh, you know, thinking, ooh, five bucks, that's a lot, or two bucks, that's a lot, or three bucks. Um, so just an encouragement towards generosity, an encouragement towards supporting refuge recovery, world services, and the you know, way that we support and organize this whole thing that we got going on. We are in need of your generosity. Please be generous at the meetings that you attend. If you'd like to donate um, for this uh, Monday, first, first, uh, first Thursday, there is a link in the chat here. Um, there's a link if you're listening to this later on YouTube. Thank you for your uh, consideration of practicing some generosity towards us. May any goodness that comes from our practice be shared with all beings everywhere. May each one of us get as free as possible in this lifetime. And together, may we create a positive change on this planet. Thank you. Good to see everybody and uh, see you next month if you join me. Have a good night. Refuge Recovery is freely offered. If you'd like to make a donation to support us, you may do so by following the link in the episode notes. We appreciate your generosity.